Hey, before you listen to this episode, make sure that you vote in your local and statewide elections. We know it can seem like an insignificant act, but it's the most powerful way to make your voice heard. Here, we'll even give you some time to pause the pod and vote. Okay, all done voting? I actually voted by mail in the early voting period. Super easy and straightforward. Plus, I could do all my research with the ballot in front of me. Oh, but then you don't get the I voted sticker and you can't post like a cute selfie and look like a thoughtful citizen. A voting selfie in November. Groundbreaking. Okay, Priestley. <laughs> Double Wars Prada over here. Anyway, we should probably tell our audience who we are and why they're hearing about voting on a math and stats podcast. Good call. I'm Sadie Witkowski. And I'm Ian Martin. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, a.k.a. MC. This is the podcast where Sadie and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. We might seem like an odd couple to tackle these topics. My background is as a cognitive neuroscientist, and Ian is a high school choir teacher. But it turns out you don't need a degree in mathematics or statistics to know how to apply them to the world around you. Especially when it comes to civic engagement, like voting. Yep, and this is something that concerns all Americans, and anyone who lives in a representational democracy. So if you're talking about voting so much, are we doing something with the math of voting? First rewind to hundreds of years ago, and the logic of districts was actually supposed to be that they would promote local and minority interests within a majoritarian paradigm which is tricky. That's the balancing act that we've got all over the world. That's that's the challenge of democracy. Ooh, the challenge of democracy. I love that. Who's this? Ah, uh, yes. Introductions are in order. Today's expert is a professor of mathematics at Tufts University and a frequently consulted expert on redistricting and gerrymandering. Meet Moon Duchenne. Unfortunately, because she testifies as an expert witness in multiple state Supreme Court cases, some of her work has to stay under wraps. I regret that many of the kind of colorful stories I have from the last couple of years are like covered by non-disclosure agreements. But <laughs> Okay, so then what can she tell us? Well, I spoke with Moon because I wanted to understand how across American history, we started to implement more and more mathematical tools to help us create voting districts. And, of course, how sometimes those tools don't work like we intended. Was she always interested in the mathematics of electoral districting? I've always been interested in interdisciplinarity and particularly in the kind of science and society um, angle. Um, That got me really intrigued by, like, how math has and hasn't been able to, like, penetrate the problem, which feels like a fundamentally mathematical problem to me. So Moon has always generally been interested in the intersection between research and the broader world. (laughs) I thought I was multidisciplinary, but Moon really puts that interest into action. It's how she got into applying her work to the U.S. voting system. I love to go to conferences for other fields. And I went to a meeting of the American Political Science Association because a friend was giving a presentation in um, uh, political theory. And it happens that in his session, there was another paper about the shapes of electoral districts that made me realize that there were scores that were used for that. I hadn't kind of known that before. So so knowing that there was this thing called district compactness was very intriguing since I do geometry. 
Wait, is there literal geometry involved in districting? Like, what would you even call the shapes of some of those districts? Like, I don't know why, but my brain immediately jumps to like dodecagon. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like she's naming regular shapes or doing grade school geometry. Uh, rather, Moon works in areas of geometric group theory and geometric topology. We talked a bit about topology in earlier episodes, but it's easiest to think of like a topographic map where we're trying to understand how points on the surface structure relate to each other. Oh, yeah. We talked about that with Tiffany in our episode on invasive species. Right. But instead of using geometric topology to track invading bugs, Moon has used her expertise to look at how we create districts and ways to understand representation within those electoral districts. A few years ago, she helped found the MGGG Redistricting Lab, which stands for Metric Geometry and Gerrymandering Group. They work on geometry, modeling, and computation, graph algorithms, geography, policy, law, and civics, but all with an eye towards the real-world implications of their work. So what are the basic questions driving her research? In essence, Moon works on the big question of how do we draw electoral districts where minorities have a chance to be represented? And what does that look like? Oh, okay. So, you know, just the minor hurdle of trying to ensure equity in voting systems while also allowing for the nuance that comes with the pluralistic society. Got it. <laughs> right. She clearly likes to tackle easy projects. <laughs> but unlike a pure math research project, there's so much cultural and legal baggage to deal with. I'm interested in, in the area of research called mechanism design, where you have maybe a goal and you build systems to achieve the goal. And unfortunately, our current voting system wasn't really created with mechanism design in mind. Moon sees several major problems with our current electoral districting system. This is not a good system to achieve the goals of American democracy. It's a terribly outdated system that hinges on some just provably false hunches about how districts would perform. Is she saying that the systems we've created no longer align with the goals? Kind of. Her broader point is that the legal traditions like voting districts aren't something we can just wipe the slate clean on and try something new. The United States of America, while still somewhat young country, has been around for over 200 years. And that means we have 200 years of legal tradition. And that's not even including whatever weirdness we got from the British or other colonialists, right? <laughs> Actually, if you think that the Senate, where each state has the same number of senators regardless of population size, is weird, the British have even weirder ideas for how to decide how to apportion people's votes. A really weird thing <laughs> goes back to 19th century Britain. I think this is super weird, which is so proportionality. If you looked at seats versus votes, proportionality says fairness is a straight diagonal line. Seats, seat share equals vote share. And weirdly, the political geographers of Britain developed a different fairness curve, a different ideal curve of fairness, like pre-1900, which was the, the cube law that you should have an S shape. Yeah, I know. It's super weird. Um, whose equation is V over 1 minus V cubed equals S over 1 minus S cubed. So this is called the cube law. And if you look at that and you go, why a cube? Why, why, why? Wait, so why are they using a cube law? I did not understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Moon was just making the point that electoral voting systems 
aren't ever really one person, one vote. It's more of a historical and legal thing that we're just not really prepared to tackle right now. Yep. Because we are a math podcast and not a history podcast. Yeah. And I think the short and the long of it is that we have a long and complicated legal history when it comes to representation. We have major events like the American Civil War and the passing of the Voting Rights Act. And then less well-known instances like Supreme Court cases that affect all legal representation in the United States. And I know I said that we are a math podcast, but I think it's important to understand at least some of the mechanistic history before we get to my favorite part of my conversation with Moon. I asked her the million-dollar question. If we weren't tied to legal history and cultural explanations, what's the fairest voting system for representational democracy? And she said... Mm, I'll tell you after the break. Ugh, fine. <laughs> If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. So are we getting the answer to that voting question now? Or Well, first I wanted to hammer home just how difficult of a question this is. Moon brought up a great specific example from a few years ago. In 2019, when the U.S. Supreme Court heard Rucho v. Common Cause, which was a partisan gerrymandering case out of North Carolina, Alito had this fascinating little riff on the bench where he said, I don't know how many valid plans there are. Maybe there are dozens, maybe even thousands. And in fact, there are like Googles, right? It's It's just, so part of the issue has been a radical underestimate of just how much choice there is and no way of gauging how much what I call elasticity that gives you. Oh, right. I forgot that Google was a number and not just a search engine. But wait, what does she mean by elasticity? That's a great question. So just because there are many choices, of course, doesn't mean that they are going to have materially different downstream consequences. Could be that there are many choices that are all cosmetically different, but they all behave more or less the same. And so I call this elasticity. So basically, there are more versions of potential voting maps than we could ever count, but a lot of them end up giving the same results? Right. So if a district is elastic, it's because there are lots of small tweaks that you can make to the shape of the borders before you get a sudden flip in how you'd expect the candidates to perform. So an elastic district is harder to gerrymander? Well, technically, gerrymandering is a term for political manipulation of electoral district boundaries that are trying to purposely create an advantage for one party or group over another. And with so many options for district maps, how you define if a district is gerrymandered or not? Well, just look at elasticity, right? That's one way, although you need some sort of measure to do so. And it turns out the political scientists have come up with all sorts of measures to test electoral districts with varying degrees of success. 
because underlying all of them is some mathematical assumptions that are sometimes difficult to prove. So even with lots of elasticity, there's still tons of district maps to choose from. Yeah. Anyway, so that's kind of thing one that people fail to understand is just how vast the what we might call the search space or the state spaces for choosing districting plans. But I feel like if you have that elasticity and the map still clearly favors one party in an unusual way, we should be able to call that gerrymandering. That's what we'd like to say, but without getting into the legal weeds, some judges want to point to intent behind creating those maps and want a smoking gun before they'll call it gerrymandering. Speaking of gerrymandering, do you know the terms packing and cracking? I am familiar with packing, but not a cracking. <laughs> okay, well, I'll let you explain packing and I'll do cracking. Sound fair? Cool. So my understanding of packing is when you try to make it harder for your opposing party to win lots of electoral seats by packing them all into fewer districts so that even if they win those, they still only win a handful of districts. That's exactly right. So even if the other party has their voters spread over a bigger geographical area, you make these weird voting districts to fit them all in so they only get that one district. And then cracking is basically the flip side strategy. In cracking, you spread out your opponent's supporters into lots of districts. The idea is to dilute their vote by spreading them out in other districts where they're outnumbered by your voters so they can't win those districts. So this is like when people complain about voting in a district that always goes for their opposing party and they feel like their vote doesn't count. Yeah, and packing and cracking are often used in concert to try to give one party a leg up on the other. Put together, that's how you get gerrymandering. I see we're running back into the issue of the smoking gun, yeah? Yeah, I knew you'd catch that. <sighs> yeah, both packing and cracking assume intention and purposely maneuvering electoral districts to benefit your side over the other. But how do you show that's happening? Intent is always so difficult to prove. Like, in my opinion, it should be about the outcome. Like, I don't really care if the person making the map had good intentions. All that really matters is whether or not it works. But. Back to packing and cracking. I think I want to see it as like a black and white issue, but I understand how something like this could happen by degrees. Yeah, and packing and cracking are seen as strategies used between parties, but what about other aspects of voters' identities? For example, with America's racist history of Jim Crow laws like poll taxes or literacy tests, legislation like the Voters' Rights Act tries to protect both voting rights at large and to make sure that minorities have an opportunity to elect their candidates by clustering them together into a district. So legally, sometimes we want to guarantee that a certain group of people are in the same district so those minority groups have the chance to win representation that looks like them. And historically, this took into account things like race and ethnicity. But what about other minorities, like LGBTQ plus or religious minorities? How can we make sure that they have a chance to elect officials that reflect them without packing and cracking or creating crazy districts? I could be wrong because I often am, but this seems very complicated and nuanced and something that doesn't have like a straightforward, simple solution. Actually, Moon's research is shifting towards looking into possible solutions, and they're not district-based in the same way. Granted, uh, implementing them is neither simple nor straightforward. So I'll be devoting the next phase of my research in 
math and civil rights, math and voting, math and democracy, to thinking about alternatives to districts, <laughs> having spent this period thinking very hard about districts. Wait, I asked about the math for making fair districts, and you're saying she wants to look into alternatives to districts entirely? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. And now we're going to get to the solutions section of the podcast, or at least a potential solution. If you were declared emperor of the U.S. and you got to set up redistricting however you wanted, do you have what you think would be the least unfair version that you would want to see done? I'm an advocate for multi-member ranked choice. And so I would like to see a state like Massachusetts, which has nine seats, be divided into three zones electing three members each where the voters get to rank their choices because i've studied this i've modeled this and this gives you proportionality for free multi-member meaning meaning you rank your favorite choices for multiple seats as opposed to single member where you're ranking choices for a single seat okay Cool. So instead of electoral districts picking one person, we would have bigger zones. Right. And then within those zones, rather than voting for a single candidate, you get to rank all of your choices from your top pick to the least favorite. I mean, you know, I love a good ranking. I famously hate picking one favorite and much prefer a top 10 moment. But how does this get you proportionality for free? If you if you make some simplifying assumptions about voter behavior, you can prove it as a theorem. And if you don't, if you just simulate voter behavior, you can find it as an empirical result. But I have very strong reason to believe that multi-member ranked choice, A, gives you proportionality kind of as an emergent property without having to engineer for it. And that's within a district, within a multi-member district. And B, you know, we just finished a study, my lab just finished a study that's being released today or Friday, sometime this week, um, where we did this for the whole country and we like rebuilt representation um, with multi-member districts. And we did something, I think I was kind of, I was surprised at this finding. And when you draw single member districts, I was talking about elasticity before, where you look to see how much changing the lines will change the outcomes. We did the same thing for these multi-member zones and we found they're incredibly robust. So that means like, and you, you, if you want to draw blind, which is very appealing to this Supreme Court, great, draw multi-member districts blind. And I've got no problem with that. You're not gonna be structurally exclusionary. Um, so yeah, that's what I would like to see if you put me in charge. And before you ask, I did interview Moon earlier in the year and the study she mentioned is already out. It's titled Ranked Choice Voting and Proportional Representation and it was published pretty recently. I'll include a link to the paper in our show notes. Okay, so her basic idea is we get to rank our candidates rather than just voting for one. I mean, I'm game. Yeah, I'm a fan of ranked choice voting in general. And by doing it in these larger zones across all candidates and not just in party primaries, it seems like you would get a more true representation of the electorate. Exactly. Plus, I think that ranked choice voting often leads to less polarization because candidates have to appeal to more people. Yeah. Sadly, because of our messy political history and the way our parties are currently structured, Moon's proposed solution is really hard to implement. Unfortunately, almost everywhere it's being implemented, it's being implemented in a single member fashion. That's a huge disappointment for me because 
you don't get proportionality out of that. You can't get three sevenths of one person, you know. So turns out our solution is maybe not a solution? Or at least it's not a solution that's easy to implement right now. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't agitate for better electoral solutions like this, though. We live in a representational democracy, and that means our voices should be heard. Right. That's why we made you go vote before listening to the show. And if y'all want to take one of those silly I voted selfies and tag us on social media, we'd love to see it. Yes, please do that. I love being seen online. Make your voice heard. (laughs) (laughs) And remember, after this, we'll have two more episodes with the lovely Tiffany Christian before moving to our next major season. We're super excited for all the topics we'll be covering, so make sure you're subscribed. If you want to learn even more about math and statistics in our world, you can also check out the previous episodes in our feed. And if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that will really help us spread the word about Carrie the Two. And be sure to check us out online at our homepage, mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. And that's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us? Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewit at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy, for his production on this show. Congrats on the new baby. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. Sure says, I do stand-up comedy (laughs) 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 on Tuesday nights. (laughs) No, No, it's not. But that was fun. It was funny. (laughs) (laughs) This is so much speaking. Smart. (laughs) Very smart. I'm told this all the time. Brilliant. Sleep little baby, sleep little baby. He's not sleeping, that's part of the problem. (laughs) That's why Tyler's getting extra time to edit. (laughs) Vote, vote.